My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but boy, put this one in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Before you write off the new Facebook, I'm begging you to watch that darn video yourself. Watch the video, the video of the metaverse, and then tell me you still despise Mark Zuckerberg and the 3D horse he rode in on. On a terrific day for the averages, Dow gaining 240 points, S&P climbing 0.98%, NASDAQ soaring 1.39%. Everyone was focused on Facebook and its rebrand into a company called Meta with a new ticker. New ticker, M-V-R-S. Get it? Within seconds of Zuckerberg revealing the new name, I read endless calls about how Facebook can run, but it cannot hide. Yeah, the misdeeds are too great. The critics act like Zuckerberg's on a mission to destroy Western democracy. Let's step back for a second. Facebook has become almost a term of derision, right? A third rail, a minefield with the equivalent of a skull and crossbones warning. Uh, uh, don't go near this death zone. Of course, that's only when people aren't using it to share their, most, their innermost thoughts or posting pictures on Instagram. It's been a rough ride for the company that's so reviled. It's become one of the few things that the left and the right can somehow agree on. You'd think everybody in Congress hates Facebook, of course, except when they're running ads for the re-election campaigns. So we'll stipulate that Facebook's got an image problem, a safety problem, possibly a political problem. But at the end of the day, this isn't mad social media or mad corporate citizenship. It's mad money. And what I saw today, when I watched Meta's Metaverse video, reminds me of why I created the FANG acronym to begin with. Because the companies that are represented by that acronym are constantly reinventing themselves. Facebook's changing its name is no different from when Google transformed itself to Alphabet, which totally threw up my acronym, by the way. At the time, that change was chided, and we still call it Google most of the time. But I think it made sense. Alphabet's more than just a search company. They branched out into the cloud and YouTube and autonomous driving. The name change was a way to draw attention to the rest of the businesses. With Facebook, now Meta, I think Zuckerberg came to the same conclusion. The conclusion that the Facebook part of the business simply is too small versus Instagram, WhatsApp. And it also didn't include all this metaverse stuff that tons of tech CEOs keep telling me will revolutionize travel and gaming and entertainment. And, of course, Facebook's got $10 billion it can throw at it. probably has to spend much more to make it work. It is something like science fiction. The idea is that when you step into the metaverse, you can be anyone you want. Anywhere you want. Hence why I said this morning on Squawk on the Street in a hint about the video that I wanted to be the original goat. That's right, Muhammad Ali. Greatest of all time. You can experience everything in 3D. You can learn things like you're sitting in an actual classroom. You can be teleported to Mars or back to the Coliseum for some bread and circus. I think of Meta's vision as, as the one that finally gives virtual reality mass appeal. In many ways, this metaverse could be the great equalizer for small, medium-sized business, allowing them to have their own 3D digital storefronts, billions in additional commerce to the most challenged of establishments. Same goes for education, where you can have the experience of learning in a classroom while you're still at home. And don't even get me started on gaming. I'm glad I don't play games because otherwise I bet this would consume my entire life. I would never be able to leave unless it was Grand Theft Auto, which I think is too violent. And as I said 
endlessly ever since I first learned that there could be such a thing as a metaverse. Sometimes NVIDIA's CEO, Jensen Wong, he sketched it out for me years ago. And uh, I was kind of blown away when he did. I mean, he he was talking about being able to create all these characters around me. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, can I really surround myself with Beethoven, Mozart, and Brahms? Attend Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, then appear in West Side Story as Tony, make a more positive ending? He said, no problem. There are many reasons why I call Jensen Wong Leonardo da Vinci, not the least of which is he showed me how real life isn't more real than imagined life. In fact, if done right, you can't tell the difference. If done really right, then you'll think that these metaverse characters are more real than real itself. Or if we want to put it in more ominous terms that I don't think is deserving, but I know people are already thinking about, they're trying to build the matrix. I don't think that concept be contained by the much derided name Facebook. The billions of people use it constantly, but it is endlessly criticized often by the same people. Just as it took Alphabet for me to think of Google as more than a play on search, it may take Meta to remind you that Facebook isn't just something you wish would go away, except when you want to be on Instagram. Sometimes it feels, doesn't it, that the half the world has a codependent relationship with social media? That's how you know it's a good business model. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, now, can the rebrand help to justify the stock's valuation? Because we are, again, on bad money. Every now and then, I do feel like the price journeys, multiples, and price-to-sales ratios, and enterprise values, and out-year projections are all shackles of not just the job, but my brain. The theoretical four walls of the spreadsheet canvas that I feel trapped in nightly. I know when we use bulletins for the investment club, talking about why the charitable trust isn't selling Facebook, the stock, by the way, you've owned it since 64, it's at 317. We can't just say, we have seen uh, the metaverse, and it is us. We explain the context of the quarter and play an old common sense English, not Wall Street gibberish, which is why we held on through this period. Thank heavens. Uh, I did all the jokes. I looked at all the jokesters on Twitter about this, and they all talked about how now I got to change the name Fang to Mang. Although if we were to boulderize the darn thing, let's replace the G2, right? I mean, come on, let's get serious. Let's add a second M. Let's, Let's put in Microsoft, darn it. I say, you know what? Bye bye, Fang. Hello, Mama. Mama, please. What really matters here, as I always say about mama, is that the secret of their valuation is that they're all in the habit of reinvention. That's why I love them so much. Facebook can't be Facebook after you spend time in the metaverse, because to paraphrase Norma Desmond in Sunset Boulevard, we are big, but the screen got too small. Speaking of mama, let's talk about the twin elephants in the room, Apple and Amazon, both of which are selling off in after hours trading in the wake of some, but I guess, look, I, I don't mind saying not so hot numbers. With Apple, I mean, even though we're going to put some asterisks there, so don't get upset because you know I like these. With Apple, the problems are obviously temporary. They took a $6 billion hit, but they would have made, so to speak, because of supply chain woes. And they can't get enough, their hands on enough semiconductors, just like everybody else, which is why their phone and accessories business came in weaker than expected. They can't make enough of this stuff to meet the demand. CEO Tim Cook said it could get worse in the fourth quarter before it gets better, which is not what we wanted to hear. That said, he also told us that in terms of semiconductors, we're seeing some major improvement as foundries in Southeast Asia come back online after getting hit by COVID. Still, Tim did tell me that while he still expects record quarters, that shortage could get worse. So why would I still like Apple? I mean, let's see. The revenues didn't beat. and uh, 
talking about the next quarter maybe not being as great as I wanted. Well, the good news is Apple's amazing brand, okay? Its brand is business deferred, not business lost. Hence why the stock's not being obliterated in after hours, and it's just rolling back a little more than today's gains. People understand. People are somewhat forgiving. Now, you know my position on Apple. Own it, don't trade it. That hasn't changed, and supply shortages will be cured. We just don't know when. Analysts are impatient beasts, and I expect to see downgrades tomorrow morning. I am sure some will go buy to hold, hoping to get back in again lower price. We don't play that game for the child trust. I don't think you should either. Remember, it's a supply problem, not a demand issue that matters. If it was demand, the conversation would be quite different. Or the soliloquy? How about Amazon? All right, they're getting hit by shortages and rising transportation costs, too. But on top of that, the retail business decelerating, in part because it's up against some very difficult comparisons. Management's guidance wasn't great either. However, the Amazon Web Services business is on fire. In the end, I think the problems here are temporary, too, just like with Apple. I would tell you that if this stock were up 50% for the year, I'd just take a sell it, probably. I'd be more, more concerned. Maybe you can get it lower. But as I'm telling investment club members, well, it's only at 5%. So, I mean, the market pretty much anticipated not so stellar quarter. And that's what you got. The bottom line, I learned a long time ago something that I think I have to share with you was don't bet against mama. Nothing tonight has changed my mind. Let's go to Jason in New Jersey. Jason. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Jason. How are you? I don't know. It was a long day, frankly. I mean, it started like at 2 a.m. I don't know. I still want to catch the Green Bay game or the Cardinal game. What, uh, I'm okay. How about you? Good, good. I'm sorry your Phillies aren't in the World Series, but what can you do? Well, that's okay. Hey, we won in 2008. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so my, my question for you is on the Boston Beer Company. I'm looking for some stocks that have been beat up over the recent year, and uh, Sam issued guidance that their uh, seltzer business has been uh, not what they expected it to be, and I was wondering if you would think that uh, it would be a good entry point now to get in and pick up some shares for uh, my portfolio. I'm thinking about 300 points ago, we did a, uh, a piece on how this stock was going to go dramatically lower. But you know what's still too high? The P.E. ratio. Look, if you want beer and Bev having a great quarter last night, and I think Constellation, STC, is the one you want to be in. All right. Bye-bye, Fang. Hello, Mama. The secret of their valuation is that they're all in the habit of reinvention. I, I don't want to bet against them. Go ahead. Make my day. I'm in money tonight. Lindy reported this morning the quarter was anything but hot air. I'm t- talking the latest numbers and learning more about the company's new ESG targets about hydrogen for the CEO. Then Brunswick reported top and bottom line beat earlier today, proving that Bodie is not going out of style. It's actually accelerating. Not bad, huh? I've got the company's top brass, and I like what they have to say. And Salesforce and Mark and Lynn Benioff announced a big $300 million climate initiative earlier today, focused on ecosystem restoration and reforestation. And I'm talking about the pledge and how you should be thinking about your actual portfolio with what Mark Benioff has to say. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Morning, one of my absolute favorite companies, stock we own for the Chapel Trust, reported what I thought was a very strong quarter. Yet its stock it actually went down. 
I'm talking about Lindy, the world's largest industrial gas distributor with a hydrogen power kicker that I love. They just delivered a nice top and bottom line beat with excellent guidance for both the next quarter and the full year. However, Lindy also pointed out some regional weakness, and there was a little pressure on their operating margins, hence today's pullback. Now, my instinct is that you should buy the dip because this is an incredibly consistent company and with a stock that rarely gives you much in the way of a buying opportunity. But don't take it from me. Let's dig deeper with Steve Angel. He's the CEO of Lindy, at least for the next few months, before he passes on that title and becomes the company's chairman, which also may have caused some weakness in the stock. Mr. Angel, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. Glad to see you again. All right. So, Steve, you've got one of the great secular industrial stories, if you don't mind my call. It's a little oxymoronic because we usually expect it to be cyclical. And I want to be sure things are intact, even though obviously there are issues involving power in China that we have to cover and a little more margin pressure than I thought. Would you would you regard this as a, a, a story where we should be looking at the cash flow, which was incredibly strong as the best indicator of your health? I think cash flow is always a great indicator of the health of a company. And we did deliver record EPS, uh, record cash flow, record free cash flow. We have a record backlog of projects I'm sure we'll talk about. We also are able to hit record return on capital. So you mentioned a little pressure on the margin. So uh, our EBIT margin was 23.6. And if you go back three years ago when we started the merger, it was 17.1% for, for the baseline year. So we've been able to grow margins 200 basis points per year. Um, we were 23.6% Q3. We were 24.2% Q2. You know, what's the difference? It's the pass-through. And so we have long-term contracts, about 30% of our business. And as the power costs go up, we're immediately able to pass that through uh, to our customers through those contracts. So you increase the revenue dollars. Um, the EBIT dollars stay the same, but it has a dilutive effect on EBIT percent. So actually, the, e- the EBIT percent is flat quarter to quarter. Now, we also saw some cost inflation in the rest of our business. It's generally power costs is the way we look at it. Uh, Q2 to Q3 in Europe, power costs went up 25 to 30 percent, which is a tremendous number. And over the next couple of quarters, we'll be able to offset all of that through our merchant liquid contracts. And so they're not instantaneous pass through. They take a matter of months. So over the next two quarters, we'll recover all of that. And then the question really becomes, well, what should we expect going forward? And after we recover all of this, uh, we, our operating model, or the formula that we usually think about is whatever top line growth we have, and I think it's going to be very strong in the future, we're able to take that plus good pricing, good price management. That's always been our history. Uh, good productivity. We lever that top line to higher EBIT dollars. Uh, and that leverage will give us, you know, pick a number, 30, 40, 50 basis points per year, EBIT margin growth on an ongoing basis. OK, I've, I feel like I'm a little far through the trees. I should have started by saying, look, this is I see backlog as huge. I see operating cash flow as huge. And this backlog number of 81 uh, percent. Uh, from the last quarter uh, is so stellar that why don't we talk about that? Because then we're not splitting hairs over uh, a couple of basis points. <laughs> that is a great point. So $13.5 billion backlog up 81%, as you said. And that backlog increased tremendously over, over the last uh, quarter. And it really was around a few projects primarily that we've had good order flow throughout. But we booked a large project with uh, TSMC in Arizona, uh, $600 million investment. This is what we call sell a gas, where we're providing them ultra-high purity 
nitrogen gases uh, on an over-the-fence basis, and $600 million for the first two phases. Uh, they planned on six phases when they started, so it's great to have an incumbent position there. My guess is they'll probably build 10 phases before it's over with. And then we have another two large projects with Gazprom uh, in Russia, and the site is near St. Petersburg. And one of the projects is a gas processing plant, a very large gas processing plant. Uh, the other project is an LNG plant. And together, it's over $6 billion that we added to the, to the backlog. And the good news is those projects and all the other projects in the backlog have uh, very strong contract contractual terms and conditions. Uh, they're high-quality projects. And so what does that mean going forward? It's great to have a backlog, but what does that mean? And we said this on the earnings call that we believe that over the next four-plus years, that we'll be able to add 5% EPS growth per year from the backlog itself. And so you add base volume growth um, in the EPS that we'll get from that, plus pricing. And we'll talk about clean energy later a little bit. It's a kicker later on. But you can see we're setting up very well for, for the next four years, actually, because we've got visibility into where 5% of the EPS growth is going to come from. No. And if you go back and think about us historically, that was more like a 2% contribution from the backlog number. So we're plus three points to that. Okay, so I just want to be sure of one other thing. As I mentioned at the introduction, you know, Steve, you've had a very big impact on me and a lot of people in the industry. And we know that you're moving up to chairman. Uh, when I saw that news, and I'm sure there's, you, know, you could say, yeah, of course, that's going to happen. It, it, you're a spokesperson for an amazing industry. And are you going to stay involved? I mean, you're about clean energy. You're about hydrogen. You're about all the things that we care about in the environment. Are you going to keep your hand in on that in that way as chairman? Absolutely, Jim. Um, I am stepping up the chairman position. And our governance structure is we have a separate chair and CEO. So this is not a transition chairman role, so to speak, as you as you so often hear about. I'll be in that role for some time. I will be. Uh, available uh, and a spokesman for the industry because I feel very strongly uh, about this company, this industry, and the enormous future that we have in front of us. Great, because uh, there are many, you are universally respected in the business, and it's been a great joy to have you on the show. I do look forward to speaking to the new CEO, but uh, just a great job and an unbelievable job at, at, in creating a colossus of industrial gases. That's Steve Angel, CEO of Lindy. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jim. I think that backlog operating cash flow tell a better story than the 300, 200, you know, the little basis points. But I got to tell everything because there were a lot of people worried about the margins. I'm not. I see the backlog and I see the future. And it might back in. Coming up, he's the Ahab of stocks because he always finds his beast. Kramer has a whale of an interview with Brunswick. Next. All right, what do we do with the stock of Brunswick Corporation, the boat and engine maker you might know as Boston Whale or Mer uh, Mercury Marine? We started recommending this, this one, boy, in the summer of last year. The stock was around 60 bucks, and by this May, it had surged $117. But in recent months, the stock has pulled back hard from its highs, along with many of discretionary spend stocks. Even though Brunswick's business remains very strong, investors have started worrying that they'll be hit hard by inflation and supply chain disruptions. 
Which brings us to this morning. The company reported a strong top and bottom line beat. Management even raised it for your forecast. Now, of course, the stock initially sold off. Wall Street didn't like the free cash flow guidance. The company sounded incrementally less bullish about the demand for boats. Now, that's the analyst saying that. When I listened, I didn't believe that. Once the conference call got rolling, Brunswick turned up immediately and finished the day up nearly 4%. So could this be a turning point for the stock or will it be yet another good quarter that's basically ignored by the market? Let's check in with David Folks. He's the CEO of Brunswick. Get a better read on the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Folks, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you very much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so, David, I've been uh, positing a thesis uh, for the quarters that have been reported. There are two kinds of companies. The companies that have unbelievable brand names, and so when they have supply chain disruptions or they have some of these raw costs that have gone up, they can take price. People won't be able to buy it. They don't even care. And then there's the other guys, and the other guys can't get the product, and they uh, can't get the price. I thought this was the quarter where it broke out, where it looked like that Brunswick finally was able to show you can raise price and you don't lose any customers. No, you're right, Jim. We, we raise prices. Obviously, we're in this for the long term. So we, we want to make sure we cover inflation, but we want to make sure that we keep our products affordable. You know, it's really important to us to expand uh, the, our customer base as well. But I think, obviously, we have incredible brands, uh, Mercury Engines, the Boston Whalers, C-Ray. Those brands can tolerate some price, and we're certainly not seeing any, uh, any contraction of demand based on the pricing that we've done so far. And I think that came through in uh, really strong margins compared with some others in our sector. Now, also, I think that where you finished in terms of uh, being flat for the year, the rest of the industry is down. I mean, you're taking share from everyone, right? We're, we've been really strong. We, we, we've taken tremendous share in our, our engine business. Um, Mercury Marine is up 310 basis points in the last two years in, in share. And just this year, many of our boat brands, particularly our fishing boat brands in aluminum and in saltwater like Boston Whaler, uh, have certainly taken share. And we expect to be ahead of the market here. Really what's going on in the overall market is nothing to do with raw demand. Raw demand is tremendously strong. What we're really seeing is constrained supply. Just uh, actually yesterday was the first day of the Fort Lauderdale Boat Show. And brand very familiar to you, uh, Boston Whaler, our sales, first day sales were up 50% versus the same show last year. So even with constrained demand and even with long wait times, people are really, really keen to get a boat. And obviously, we want to get as many of them as we possibly can. Well, when people understand this. When I talked to you last time, same of the, at the boat show, you also had unbelievable year over year. So this is... Uh, a continuation of what a lot of people thought was going to end when the pandemic wound down. It didn't happen. It accelerated. Uh, no, it really, it really did, and it really has. You know, we have an online community that we poll frequently called Ripple that we set up, uh, trying to understand what their boating behaviors are, boaters, new boaters, seasoned boaters. And a lot of people are still finding ways to find time on the water with the new flexible working arrangements, for example. And now, um, even though we're increasing capacity, because field inventories are so low, um, even with that capacity, it's probably going to be three years before we really get field inventory levels back to where they should be. So really nice for us in terms of being able to see demand going forward. And we're doing everything we possibly can to increase capacity in terms of boats and engines to try and satisfy as much of that demand as we can. Now, we had a, a really terrific guy on last night in a chemical business, and he was saying, you have to understand the way things work. You could have 19 ingredients for something that you're trying to make, and then there's one that has a force majeure supply problem, and then everything's <laughs> holded. It runs with, I, you know, with my, tw- with, with my beautiful 24-footer, there are a million parts. And i got to tell you, David, it is just loaded with semiconductors. 
How do you keep getting your semiconductors when even uh, Apple can't get its semis? Well, we have a great um, supply chain team, Jim. We work across, uh, we, we leverage our scale. Certainly, you know, we're a big player in, in our industry. And we have flexibility. You know, some of the supply chain constraints have been around very specific chips used in the automotive industry for autonomous driving or uh, advanced braking technologies. We use um, uh, quite a lot of chips in our product, but they're uh, relatively more um, generic. And so supply is not being quite so constrained. So we've been able to get them. It's taken a lot of hard work, but we have a great team. And as you may have seen from today, our uh, our, uh, Mercury Marine team uh, expects to produce about 110% of their projected full year volumes this year. So tremendous overdrive from them. And even on our boat side, we expect to produce more than 95% of our originally uh, planned annual volume. So really a great job by our supply chain to keep that uh, keep that manufacturing production going. All right, last question. Do you think that yeah, I was puzzled with the stock being up because I know there's so many analysts who would say, well, this is the last good quarter, last good quarter, last good quarter. Do you think that we're going to come to a time when the Freedom Boat Club is going to make it so we stop thinking about your that some of these analysts, not me, because you know what I think about your product. Some of these analysts realize, you know what, there is a long term feeder into this business and it's the Freedom Boat Club. Uh, free, I think, you know, Freedom Boat Club is a is a wonderful annuity model. It has it's grown tremendously quickly. Three hundred and twenty locations now, four thousand boats, and around seventy thousand members. I think so. It's become very large very quickly, and it really is an annuity type business. But we have another huge annuity business, and that's our parts, accessories, and systems business, which is really dependent on people boating and not really on new boat sales. So this year, fifty percent of our earnings will come from these annuity type businesses that really are pretty independent of new boat sales. And I think that's a big part of uh, us going forward, a big part of the new shape of our company and, and something we, we're very keen to emphasize going forward. You're absolutely right. That's how you get a higher price earnings multiple. So instead of 10, 11, you're going to go up to 13, 14, get a bunch of new turns as people recognize, wait a second, there's a stream here that is not hostage to the economy. David, you're doing a terrific job. Uh, and I'm so glad to see the stock finally up on good news because people are finally <laughs> starting to understand what you and I know, which is you can't meet demand and it's multiple years and you got a product that people will pay more for because it's the best in the industry. And that's David Folks, the CEO of Brunswick. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you so much, Jim. Really yeah. appreciate it. This is the first time I remember in a long time that this court that it had a great quarter in the stock rally. What that says is people are starting to understand this is not some cyclical up, down, up, down, but maybe a long term secular grower because of what Mr. Folks has been doing. Mad Money's back in for the break. Coming up, this Kramer fave has delighted investors and reinvented the way business keeps in touch with the customer. Salesforce keeps in touch with the home gamer. On Mad Money, next. At the height of earnings season, it's easy to get bogged down in the grind of examining quarterly reports. You know, I do. I mean, I'm kind of a nerd about this stuff, but sometimes you see an announcement's too big. It wakes you up in an instant, reminds you what really matters. No, not the meta. Okay, we'll cover that earlier. But the survival of the planet. 
Today, Mark Banioff, the CEO of Salesforce, announced that his family and his company will commit a combined $300 million in order to accelerate ecosystem restoration, not destruction, (laughs) restoration, and promote climate justice. That's a huge step in the right direction. So let's go directly to the source with Mark Benioff, the visionary co-founder, chair, and CEO of Salesforce.com, to learn more about his efforts to save the planet. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thanks so much for having me on today. It's always great to see you. So, Mark, we're short about a trillion trees. Huh? What can we do about it? Jim, you know, the planet is a key stakeholder, and every CEO today is managing for all stakeholders, not just for all shareholders. And when we look at what we're doing as we move to Glasgow next week, we're really focused on three things. One, every company has to get to net zero, Jim. Salesforce is already net zero today or fully renewable. We're going to make more emissions cuts still. Every CEO needs to say they're getting to net zero. Number two, we need to plant a trillion trees. You're 100% right. That's why we founded 1T.org two years ago. And it's why we're investing another $300 million today to accelerate that. We have commitments for almost 100 million trees worldwide. Sorry, 100 billion trees worldwide. And we're on our way to our trillion tree goal. Why that is important, Jim, is because every trillion trees allows us to sequester 200 gigatons of carbon, and that is critical. We've already deforested the planet from six trillion trees to three trillion trees. We need to put a trillion trees back right now. And number three, Jim, we need to energize this ecopreneur revolution. We're meeting so many great entrepreneurs who are building next generation technology using this fourth industrial revolution to save the world. And we need to keep our eyes on them. And if CEOs do those three things, I think they're doing the right things to make sure that we hit our climate goals. All right. You know, uh, you and I think that business is the greatest platform for social change. But the government did announce some things today. President Biden announced some things that would be the largest, largest, uh, let's say, uh, climate rollback of pollution. Let's call it that. You know, talking about five hundred fifty billion. This needs the government markets too big for just individuals. Correct. Jim, look, what President Biden is doing and what other presidents are doing are great. But I want to tell you about the EU president, Ursula van der Leyen. She is doing an amazing thing with something called the EU Green Deal. And I was just in Europe. I was with a lot of my customers there and I was talking to them about the EU Green Deal. And she is going to charge them for the carbon that they are emitting into the atmosphere. That is a major step forward in terms of building a carbon economy. You know, if we build a carbon economy, Jim, that's a trillion dollar opportunity for our economy. Because right now, if companies are emitters or uh, companies are not paying attention to becoming net zero, well, it's all costing us a lot of money. So why don't we just make sure that we're all 100 percent focused on becoming net zero? That is what uh, President van der Leyen is doing with the EU Green Deal. And I am all for that. Well, even the companies that are trying to be good, that are the biggest polluters, understand we got to pay. I mean, this is the moment, isn't it, Mark? I mean, I've got guys coming on. Their predecessors would never think about the, the environment other than how much to destroy. These guys all care now. It's the time. You are 100 percent right. Five years ago, I don't think we had this kind of consensus. I think we're all watching the climate change now before our eyes. We're seeing what's happening. We're seeing the rising temperatures. We're seeing the floods. We're seeing the wildfires. It's right in our backyard. So every CEO is motivated. And look, like I said, the planet is a key stakeholder. It's in our interest as CEOs to do this. But we have to get to net zero. That is number one for our companies and for the world. 
Now, uh, I'm on a site right now where there's now been 50.5 billion trees. This is one of my favorites. It's called 1T.org. It's not just for uh, individuals, but it, uh, UPS, PepsiCo, Royal Dutch, MasterCard, Unilever, AstraZeneca, HP. I want to mention these guys because they deserve it, okay? Because I want people to be shamed if they're not on the list and be proud if they are. This site's doing a good job. Jim, I am so excited about all the companies who are making tree pledges. That's why I created the new tree fund today. We want to accelerate what's happening on 1T.org. We want to get everyone to be part of this revolution. And I think that it's a critical part of the future. Look, Jim, we're part of nature. You know, nature is something that we have to take part of and that we also have to make sure that we're taking care of. And that's what 1T.org is all about. It's about nurturing our biodiversity. So we're making a $100 million commitment right now to accelerate 1T.org and all the organizations worldwide who are doing such a great job to get those tree pledges. Number two, we are also making sure that we're giving another $100 million to all those amazing ecopreneurs that are out there. That's another part of this incredible fund that we're releasing. And I think this is something that everyone can do. This is not that complicated. In fact, Jim, you and I both know that, and both I think we've both done this, we planted trees in our backyard recently to become part of this revolution. No, we did. We absolutely did. And 25,000 uh, in our backyard in a forest that, that, that was burned out in Oregon. Look, I, 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 I got you, so I got to ask you. I, there are some things, you know, there was news today. Apple didn't make the quarter because of supply constraints. Amazon supply constraints. But someone changed things, called a company Facebook into Meta. I, and Meta, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the video. But redemption can happen in strange ways. Yes, no, maybe Facebook. Jim, you, you know how I feel. What, what are our corporate values? What, every CEO calls me and says, let's talk about what our corporate values should be. Is it trust? Is it truth? Is it uh, customer success? Is it innovation? Is it equality? And per our discussion today, is it sustainability? Everyone's CEO can choose what are your core values. Just say, this is what we're really committed to. And then you'll know who is really on point, who's doing right and who is not. And those people who are not doing right, well, you're, you're going to see the world is not going to be in their favor. And that is what's really going on today. It's a revolution of values, Jim. So let's get focused on that. Let's have a great Glasgow next week. And let's all get to net zero. There's just one other that I have to ask you about. American Forest <laughs> Foundation. I mean, some of these guys are doing amazing things, Mark. I mean, they are. Well, you know, family, far, family forest owners can do something. There are individuals that can do something. And I want, it's, it's not so big that we all can't do something, right? Jim, that's the whole point. And what I loved about Jad Daly and American Forests and, you know, his vision of tree equity. In fact, right here in San Francisco, I just looked at our tree equity map. And I looked at all the places where we have trees and where we don't have trees. And I'm actually talking to our mayor and saying, how do we fill in our cities so that everybody can have trees? When you look at equality in our country, in the United States, and it's probably true worldwide as well, those who have trees, well, they're just living healthier, more prosperous lives. It's an amazing fact about trees. So that's why I'm excited about American forests and that vision of tree equity. Has anyone, last question, has anyone ever said, no, Mark, we don't need more trees? There are anti-tree people out oh. there, Jim. You think they're not anti-tree. Let's they're put their there. name on a website, okay? <laughs> Well, and also, Jim, you know what social media does? It amplifies people like that who might be in the minority and might not have a position even that's factually accurate, but it gets amplified, you know, through these algorithms. This is something that has to be addressed. 
And we, we realize that. This is a moment where I think the FCC, the FTC, they can come in and they can regulate that, you know, social media and say, yes, we can actually call for truth. This is very important. As you know, I own Time Magazine, Jim, and we're held accountable, and so are you, for what is said on our pages and on your network. And that needs to be true for every tech company as well. All right. Well, I, look, I, I don't want to lose sight of the fact that business is the greatest force for social change. And business also has to clean itself up because not everybody's there yet. Mark Benioff is the Salesforce chair, CEO and co-founder. Always great to see. You. And this issue is, well, it's about our lives. It's about the world. Thank you, Mark. Great to see you, Jim. Okay. Go trees. Thank you. Mahalo. Everybody's back into the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The lightning round is next. It is time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Steve, that's time for the lightning round. Let's start with Ed in New Jersey. Ed! Booyah, Jim Kramer. Booyah, Ed. I'm calling calling from beautiful Cape May, New Jersey, and it is Philadelphia Eagles territory. Go, Birch. I am perplexed by all the new construction. Is AZEC a buy, sell, or hold? I think AZEC is a long-term buy because, frankly, I believe that their uh, artificial wood, so to speak, is better than the other guys. The other guys do really well. And Jesse Singh's doing a terrific job there, so I think it's a buy. Let's go to Dave in Wisconsin. Dave. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm looking at standard lithium, FL. Well, everybody wants to play lithium. To me, it feels like when we uh, got involved with the battery stocks and put it, they crushed you. I, this is so speculative. Please don't get hurt. Let's go to Jared in Utah. Jared. Hi, Jim. I need some help. I've uh, got a large position in Sonos, and after the last three months, I'm now in it at market price, and I don't know where to go from here. Yeah, you know, I mean, we had them on. It was a great quarter. I'm sure people worried about components. I think Sonos is a great long-term story, and you're fine. I'm using Katie Uberty's work from Morgan Stanley. I think she does great stuff on it. Let's go to Fred in Maryland. Fred. Jim, double booyah to you, buddy. Same. What's up? Hey, uh, I'm looking at some Centrus Energy Corporation stock, ticker number LEU. And uh, everybody, this market, this, this is the uranium company that people want to buy. Uranium is being cornered, I think. And uranium stocks can continue to go up. But this is a speculative stock that has a greater fool theory feel to it. Let's go to John in Puerto Rico. John. John. Hello. Booyah. Booyah. What's up? Caller. Oh, I'm calling because I want to know your what your opinion is on PaySafe, the payment processing company. I, I, to I me, that, I, has, I, look, uh, this thing should not be down 50%, honestly. I mean, it's not a terrible company. I, I, it is just not a terrible company, so I'm going to say it's okay. Let's go to James in New York. James. How you doing? I, uh, I'm calling about a very, very confusing stock. It's got the pipeline like, like no other, but it's, it, so it should be gold. But it's trading like turd, and I want to know why. It's IBRX, Immunity Bio. Dogecoin. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, you're rolling the dice here. You're rolling the dice here because it's got what it's after is one of the toughest cancers. And that's why I think the stock is uh, is struggling because it's, it's a cancer that so far uh, not a lot of hope for. Let's go to Tony in New York. Tony. 
Booyah, Dr. Kramer. Yes. Long, second time caller, long time loyal listener. Thank I want you. To say thank you for all, I want to say thank you for all you do for us and your uh, honest advice. Um, I need your opinion on a company um, long time going forward. It, it just had great quarterly earnings report. Um, the CEO is very positive. Uh, the name of the company is Cleveland Cliffs. You're in luck. U.S. Steel reported a great number tonight. You know, I like Cliffs. I think they're terrific. And by the way, my Chapel Trust, which you can follow by joining the investment club, owns Nucor. And that's the best lot. Joshua in Texas. Joshua. Hey, team. How are you? I am good. How about you, Josh? I'm doing good. So, uh, as you know, uh, remote work continue into uh, 2022. And... Uh, I look at the preliminary of the Q3 report from WeWork that's showing up to 60% in September that uh, the company occupancy increased and also 52%. I, you know, I, I, I think this is, look, I think WeWork is good. I mean, it's 10 bob, it crushed a lot of debt. I, mean, I think it's good. It makes a lot of sense in this kind of environment, of a hybrid work environment. And so good stuff. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round. Is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, find out what cryptocurrency Kramer has in his charitable trust and what he sees for the future of this fast growing but little understood asset class. Next. I've never seen people excited about stocks the way they're excited about cryptocurrency, at least not since this show went on the air 16 years ago. We can talk about Mama, a.k.a. Fang, all we want, and we do. But I know people are keeping one eye on Ethereum or Bitcoin or even Dogecoin, the cryptocurrency that was literally created as a joke, but now it's real traction, thanks to Elon Musk. While my quirks expertise is in stocks, I do have a soft spot for crypto because, full disclosure, I'm not allowed to own individual stocks. Only my charitable trust can. I can't, however, own crypto, at least until the network updates its guidelines. I bought a farm with my Bitcoin winnings earlier this year. Nice, nice piece of real estate. Paid down my mortgage with my profits from Ethereum, where I'm now playing with the house's money. I know a lot of people say ridiculous things about crypto, and I've caught a lot of flack for acknowledging that. But at the end of the day, I've said repeatedly that you can use Bitcoin or Ethereum as a hedge against inflation. Up to 5% of your savings placement for gold. All that said, I didn't buy Bitcoin or Ethereum as inflation insurance. In all honesty... I was gambling, simply gambling on crowd psychology, though. And I have no idea whatsoever why these things went up, except that there are a lot of over-enthusiastic enthusiastic people who want to buy high and sell higher. I know it's being used. MasterCard said as much on his conference call this morning. But it's being used as a speculative investment, not a currency. Consider the curious case of United Wholesale Mortgage, second largest mortgage lender in America, which offered borrowers a chance to pay in Bitcoin, Ethereum, or even the flimsy Dogecoin. You know how many people took them up? Six! Total six. While customers thought it was cool, they just weren't interested in using crypto to pay the bills. So they so, uh, you know, scrapped it. Gimmicky. Not real commerce. Sure, some institutions try to press you. I tried to buy the non-fungible token or NFT of Time Magazine's iconic Is God Dead cover from 1966. But Time's management insisted that I bid for this thing in Ethereum. I went as high as 25 grand worth of Ethereum before my wife had a fit. Correctly, I walked away. The thing ought to be sold for $100,000 worth of Ethereum. I immediately forgot my Ethereum position entirely and never translated it back into dollars. And that turned into one of my greatest hits ever. 
And as always, I say it's better to be lucky than good. Other than that, NFT auction, uh, I, I haven't seen many transactions conducted with crypto, except when it's used to facilitate crime, like paying digital ransoms. So are cryptocurrencies real currency? <laughs> Who cares? Gold's not a real currency either. Nobody transacts with gold coins. It only retains its value because it's shiny, scarce. That said, I don't know how anyone can believe these cryptocurrencies are real or equal. As we saw the other day, the bulk of the crypto traded on Robinhood was actually in Dogecoin, which again exists solely as a joke. A joke where the whole concept of crypto is the punchline. People love it for the Elon Musk factor and also because it's only 30 cents. At the end of the day, it's gambling. A lottery ticket based on someone else liking your lottery ticket more than you do. Although I can't really criticize anyone for making that wager. Fortunately, the SEC recognizes that this asset class can be pretty fraught. And today they shot down, uh, apparently shot down, a leveraged Bitcoin ETF. I'm really glad they did this because it would have been nuts. Most leveraged ETFs have been a disaster for home gamers. And the volatility they cause, as well as their aggressive marketing, bad news. But listen, as long as you recognize the very real possibility that the whole investment case for crypto rests on the greater fool theory, you got my blessing to speculate on it. I'm holding on to my Ethereum because I believe there could be millions of greater fools out there. I think that's a decent bet. But then again, I also like the Cardinals against the Packers tonight. And uh, I'll take the Eagles giving three and a half on Sunday. The difference, I'm an Eagles fan, so my judgment's suspect. I don't have any particular attachment to Ethereum, and eventually I'll ring the register on the rest of my position when I think it's done going higher. So by all means, speculate on your favorite cryptocurrency. That's what I'm doing. But do it like an investor, not a fan. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.